the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground Horses raised, heads bowed down We're gathered here on hallowed ground To sing this song away Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This show is in part about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from the nursing home bill. Then usually later in the show, we talk about different subjects, such as and tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about baseball. And also about a little bit of history in railroads with our recurring guest, Colonel Stephen Ryan. And we're sad to learn that uh, Eddie Brasud died. And Eddie Brasud was a shortstop, was in the major leagues for about 12 years, good ball player, was in the All-Star game at least once that I remember with the Boston Red Sox. And a shortstop with a little bit of home run pop and a very educated man. Ivy League graduate, or I think he was graduated from Stanford, I'm sorry. But a very interesting character. He's one of the two Major League Baseball players who played both for the New York Giants and the New York Mets, the other guy being Willie Mays. But getting back to estate planning and elder law, right now I have my wife Beth here. And you have a question, Beth. Hi, everybody. What's the question? I do have a question. All right, well, this this is something that hits a lot of people, but... um, uh, this is from Mary, and she was she's the executor in her mother's will, and uh, I mean her aunt's will, and there are no other heirs. She's she was the the last rela- relative, and so her aunt had this lovely home and everything, and everything was left to Mary, and Mary is concerned because there's so many nice things. She doesn't know anything, but she said she can't take everything. And it's it's emotional for her because she loved her aunt. And she just does not know what to do with the the things that her aunt left her. 
Well, I mean, assuming she's the nominated executor of the will, as the nominated executor, you do have a right or duty to safeguard the property that's within the house. So she should safeguard it. Now, the problem would be if uh, her aunt died in the house and the police put a seal in front of it, then we may have to file the will. We would have to file the will and try to get that uh, seal, you know, removed. And, of course, it's a little bit easier if you have a will than if you don't. So the first step, we'd probably want to file the will with surrogate's court in either case with a copy of the death certificate. Now, assuming that Aunt Mary didn't have a trust, but, you know, assuming the deed is in the aunt's name alone, then we would have to, to sell the property, we'd have to file a copy of the will, ask it to be probated. Now, a lot depends on what other relatives, if any, are out there, because a lot of times people say, well, I'm the only niece, but they're not talking about a nephew who disappeared 20 or 30 years ago and hasn't been heard from since. He still may have to be notified or contacted. And I assume that the aunt, her parents weren't alive or that she didn't have any brothers or sisters now alive. So that could be complications. They would have to be notified. But basically, the executor under the will has a duty to safeguard the property within the house. So she should safeguard it, should make that make sure the house is secure. And then if the will leaves the personal property to her, um, that's pretty much up to her what to do. And, and I mean, for the most part, you know, jewelry or whatever should probably come out of the house and put, put in a safe place. Uh, if there are artifacts, mementos that are worth money. Otherwise, for the most part, the furniture in today's world, what we do in furniture, it's it's almost impossible to get rid of it without paying somebody to get rid of it. Because you may think you have lovely pieces of furniture, but in effect, when you ask somebody to buy it or you're looking for buyers for it, uh, there's no... It's not. It doesn't have a market. People don't appreciate old furniture anymore. Um, okay. Is is there any other part of that question we missed? I think that probably covers it. I I, I think as much as anything else, she's she's finding that uh, if, there was more to the the question, but she's she's having a hard time. Even she's trying to give things away, and it's like you say, it's hard. Well, she shouldn't give anything away until the will is probated, because it's not okay. hers until the will is probated. Now, I'm not talking okay. about furniture that, again, that for the most part nobody cares about, but if there's any jewelry, if there's any um, items worth money, mementos, historical items, whatever, she should safeguard right. those and not give them away until after the will is probated. Because it's not okay. yours. The will by itself does not transfer assets. A will to be valid to transfer the assets within those out has to go through court and the judge has to rule that the will is a valid will. And that's where the complications could happen when we're dealing with okay. when we're dealing with uh, other relatives. Because, like I said, you know, you may say I'm, I'm the only niece. But I assume there's not a son who disappeared 20 years ago, and I'm not assuming that. Obviously, we'd have to check that out. Assuming there's not a nephew or niece that disappeared. And again, assuming that they're not a brother or sister, or if if there's a parent alive, if the will's not probated, the assets in the house technically go to the parent. So let's say this aunt, and, and in today's world, this happens more and more. You know, we have 100-year-old parents and 75-year-old children. 
and the 75-year-old children dies, and the assets in the child's name alone without a will go to the parents. And so, you know, the world gets more complicated as, you know, people live longer. So we got to be a little careful. You got to find out what the family tree is, go from there. But even if there's nobody else, we should still file the will. You know, let's say this truly is a niece and there are no other nephews and nieces, no other brothers or sisters. Parents are gone, obviously no spouse and no children. We can file the will. And yeah, if she's absolutely sure, she can give some of the items away. But if the deed is in uh, the aunt's name alone, then the will has to be probated in order to sell the property and dispose of the assets. I think we're going to take right. a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You'll listen to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We have an old friend of the show, Colonel Stephen Ryan. And, you know, I'm not even sure what he's talking about. I thought we were going to talk about current events or military events or whatever. But you want to talk about railroading history, right? Uh, yes, Mike. Okay. So, you, you Altoona. And some people say, what are we talking about? But why don't you why don't you carry the ball? 
Well, it started with uh, your son, Mike, in a conversation the other night, which led to it. So I recently returned from uh, western Pennsylvania, where I went to visit Horseshoe Curve, which is considered for uh, railroad enthusiasts sort of be the must-be bucket list place to go to watch trains. Um, Horseshoe Curve is about seven miles west of Altoona. Altoona was the heart and nerve center of the famous Pennsylvania Railroad. It's where they used to build the steam locomotives uh, in Pennsylvania, even though they were headquartered in Philadelphia. So I recently did the trip with my brother David and my friend Kenny Hogan, uh, who's also went to trains. I myself am a recent member of the Nassau Lionel Operating Engineers out in Levittown. I'm on probation. I only joined in November. I like to say I'm on double-secret probation like an animal house. But um, I thought you would like this because there is some connection to the Civil War in that early part of the 19th century of how this took place. Um, In the town of Altoona was noted in 1862 was a meeting of 13 of the governors in the Union who uh, met to come together and come with a consensus and support President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Um, Outside of the Pennsylvania Railroad, it's probably the most historically significant event that took place there. Yeah, so if it's 13 governors, that means roughly about half. Exactly. So (laughs) it was just really a uh, taboo support and to put pressure on the legislature and Congress to uh, support President Lincoln's uh, Pushing this had happened right after the Battle of Antietam when he finally decided that uh, he now had a, uh, a victory, at least a strategic one, to uh, push for the Emancipation Proclamation uh, yeah. for political leverage. Now, I know in some history books they said, well, the Emancipation Pro- Proclamation did not, in effect, free any slaves. But it was a very valuable tool for the Union forces. And one of the things it did, it led to the fact that if you – went into a southern area, an area under rebellion to the United States, you could free the slaves. And and that was a powerful tool in, you know, but let's say Sherman's march through the sea. Agreed. And uh, the other thing it gave President Lincoln was leverage overseas. There was no way there was going to be European interference, uh, certainly from from Great Britain, Um, you know, even though there were threats of possible war with them or them coming in to try to negotiate a settlement. Um, by taking the moral high ground of basically, essentially, um, outlawing slavery, um, there was no way politically they could endorse the Confederacy or even recognize them as a separate nation. Right. And I did read some uh, articles and whatever that the British did have a plan to invade the United States. But the Emancipation Proclamation kind of cooled things down where they politically in, – in England, slavery was very unpopular, so they could not come on the on the side of the Confederacy. But right. there, there was talk. And, and also I've read articles like how the invasion would have worked or not worked. And, of course, one of the things is depending how close they were to the Union producing monitors because if they had enough monitors, enough ironclad ships – the British Navy would not have been able to take New York Harbor, which is what would be one of the plans. Certainly, if we went to war, I think it would have been mostly, largely a naval engagement, perhaps. Um, although the British did deploy many troops to Canada in response to the Slidell incident when yeah. uh, we forced the two Confederate diplomats off the ship 
Um, Lincoln had to apologize diplomatically for the incident, but the British still sent troops to to Canada, right? Um, at least as sort of a uh, veiled threat. But they didn't have enough of a standing army that they could, they could really invade the United States. No. They I'm, could just do a lot of harm to our right. ports. Right, and I, and I think exactly it would have taken more of a uh, naval battle with uh, yeah. the Be- U.S. Navy. Because remember, England back then, they had troops in India, they had troops in South True, Africa. True, they were spread out. You know, and they, they didn't have enough of a standing army to send troops to America. They couldn't have a three-front war, in effect. They were, they were fighting in Africa. They were there were always problems in India, Afghanistan, Certainly. things like that. So right. they they didn't have the manpower to send a real army over here, and then of course they ran the risk of the United States taking Canada if they did go to war. And um, a few Irishmen did try to do yeah. that right after the war. <laughs> right, General General Tom Sweeney and Captain O'Neill. Right, which we maybe we should revisit that someday. All right, but let's get back to Altoona. So, so. Uh, I've been a model railroader since I was a kid, and I just recently joined the NASA line of operating engineers, as I mentioned, in Levittown, um, where we have open houses um, in October, March, and in December. Uh, but in the course of my getting really, really back into the hobby, um, I came across some DVDs and found out about Horseshoe Curve, and I said, well, I have to definitely do that. So uh, three of us went out there. We took Amtrak. We went all the way to Johnstown. And the reason was because Altoona does not have a place to rent a car. So we went a little further on to about uh, 35 miles to Johnstown and did manage to rent a car. But while we were there, we also visited Johnstown. Um, So I think any of your listeners would be interested in doing a trip out there. It's where the famous Johnstown flood took place on May 31st. 1889, where 2,200 people were killed. Um, the uh, dam broke about 14 miles to the northeast, and when the dam broke, it flooded the whole town with a force uh, equivalent to the flow of the Mississippi River. Um, and when it came down, it was a, the worst disaster in U.S. history, uh, man-made or otherwise. Clara Barton from Civil War fame uh, spent six months in Johnstown. Uh, trying to help people recover from the disaster. Um, but we doubled back eventually to Altoona and uh, went to the uh, Railroaders Memorial Museum. And this is the site of where they had Junita, Junita uh, shops um, where they used to build the railroads, and it's now been turned into a museum. So um, Altoona is a struggling town. You might say it's a bit of a rust town. Um, it was sort of a one-trick pony. It was really the, centered on the Pennsylvania Railroad. Um, Pennsylvania Railroad, of course, emerged with its rival, the New York Central, in 1968 and became Penn Central. And um, that was the federal government saying, well, we're not going to bail you guys out, so you need to work it out. Those were the two big rival railroads in the Northeast, of course, along with the Baltimore and Ohio. Um, but the marriage didn't work very well, and that led to the passenger train service uh, causing the formation of Amtrak in 1971. So that's the way you would get out there if you didn't drive or fly. Um, But I recommend taking the train because the Amtrak actually goes through Horseshoe Curve. So you get to see it as a passenger as well as going there. The train goes from where to where? So the train leaves from Moynihan Station, Penn Station, and uh, goes all the way to Pittsburgh. And there are two trains daily, one going, one coming. Um, so we grabbed the train at about uh, 
10.30 in the morning. We got there roughly around 6 o'clock. Uh, the only time we had to really stop for a while was in Philadelphia to switch ch- trains because they use an electric train from New York down to D.C. and Philly, and that uses, you know, the pentagraphs that you see running along the wires overhead. And then when we got to Philadelphia, it switched to an electric diesel, and we continued the journey. So we had gotten off at Johnstown, which is about three stops before Pittsburgh. All right. So what what else is the – you told me there's a Civil War significance to Altoon and the Confederacy. So um, the Confederates um, – as you know, there were many plots and plans to uh, cause havoc, particularly here in New York City. Um, they also had plans to go after the uh, aqueduct in Monocacy in Maryland. That was planned, especially when Lee was invading from Maryland on his first campaign in 62, which led to the Battle of South Mountain, the Battle of Antietam. Um, But also Horseshoe Curve was so vital to the Union in terms of industry because we had the steel plants of Pennsylvania making the cannons and the ammunition and all the materials of war. The Confederates wanted to blow up Horseshoe Curve. Uh, Fast forward June of 1942, the Germans launched Operation Pistorius, which was a uh, plan to target and possibly destroy in key industrial sites in the United States, one being close to home, Grand Central Station. Their plan was actually go down beneath Grand Central Station where there's huge turbine generators and throw buckets of sand in it, which would, with all the oil in the gears, would have put that out of commission for up to one to two years. All right. Do you know, were these, were these German soldiers, were they? No, they were civilian spies. Civilian uh, spies. Two of them were American citizens and spoke American uh, spoke English fluently with an American accent, could pass themselves off as Americans. Um, but that was one of the targets. And along with nearby Altoona, which is seven miles to the east of Horseshoe Curve, which is, the again, a, the nerve center of the Pennsylvania Railroad, that was also targeted because they were building steam locomotives, which were essentially moving war material across the country. Okay. I think we should step back a second. So there were six... Germans. There were eight altogether. Eight, eight Germans. Two were already here. Six landed on Long Island in a submarine were famously caught by a Coast Guard sailor who was walking along the beach and saw them land. Yeah, because I think that's a, a, a part of history that a lot of people don't have any idea what we're talking about. Right. So during World War II, um, they, the spies, the rest of the spies, the six remaining spies landed in uh, – Suffolk County, not far from Block Island, and um, a Coast Guard sailor was just patrolling the beach and saw them. They actually tried to bribe him. He took their money, walked away, pretended like he was bought off, but actually called the police who later called the FBI, and they were rounded up and captured. They were put on trial. Um, Four of them were executed, given the death penalty, and two of them were sent back to Germany um, by President Truman at the time after the war to live in occupied Germany. Yeah, and I always thought that was a little bit of a harsh sentence because they didn't really do anything and the war was virtually over. True. Well, you know, by the time they were caught. So, and Right. It was also an objection why it was done in a military tribunal. And we hear a lot about that, obviously, with the Guantanamo situation during the War on Terror, um, that it should have been turned over to a, uh, a federal court, a regular civilian court, but it was not. And really, the FBI was the lead agency uh, when they apprehended them. Yeah, and of course, in World War II, we had a different view 
a different view on things, you know, like, but I don't know. Imagine we might be charged as traitors now. Yeah. But what Guantanamo, what was your position on it? You must have had some. Well, we needed a place to hold prisoners, certainly, um, particularly to keep them from escaping. And some of the people we were working with who were, uh, you know, sometimes our allies, some of them were, some of them weren't. Uh, we really wanted to get them away. Um, I have mixed feelings on how we could have handled it. I, it took forever to bring a lot of them to trial. I, In hindsight, I think we would have been better off just putting them through the federal court system rather than military tribunals because it seemed that we were stumbling along the way uh, because we weren't quite familiar on how to go about this because they've been done so infrequently in our history. Um I mean, the really big ones we had was in the Civil War afterwards uh, when they went after the commander of the Andersonville uh, prison. Yeah, and, and of course, in the Civil Civil War, habeas corpus was suspended. There were a lot of, I mean, right. you know, people today uh, would be astounded at what lack of, I mean, newspaper editors were jailed. Right. From, you know, in the Absolutely. Civil War. Right. Uh, little <laughs> Lincoln took a lot of criticism for that. Right, right. And I, I mean, a lot of uh, libertarians today, you know, are not too fond of Lincoln because he really did abrogate the Constitution. Now he's in a situation where he's fighting a civil war and half the country was rebelling. Right, and we were in, in the state of territory. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. the Supreme Court called him out a couple of times. Yeah. Now, just just backtracking, this producer chiming in here, but um, just backtracking a little bit, what is it, you know, both from a logistical and engineering standpoint that makes the um, the railroad at Altoona so significant? So um, the um, Horseshoe Curve was built in 1854. Uh, prior to that, you had to get over the Allegheny Mountains, which is the western portion of the Appalachians, um, they had the uh, Allegheny Portage Railroad, which prior to this time, up until the early 1830s, uh, the railroad was established in 1834. Remember, the trains were brand new uh, novelties. Prior to, to that, to get from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh would take upwards of 23 days. Now, if you were somewhat wealthy, you could take a, a carriage, um, you know, um, could be expensive, the other way was to move by barges, much in similar fashion to the Erie Canal. Um, but they moved very slow. They had it hooked to a mule with a rope and basically would pull the barge with the passengers on board um, and get to the Alleghenies. And then they would have to obviously transfer um, and be moved by horse and then meet it to another train. The um, This railroad, the Allegheny Portage Railroad in 1834, built a tunnel through the mountains. It was the first tunnel for railroads, but not actually used by a train, meaning the train never really went into the tunnel. They would basically bring the passengers up on these barges, offload it, uh, disconnected from the train, and then teams of mules would pull them through the tunnel down the slope to the other side where another train would meet it and then continue on their way. But they still couldn't get all the way to Pittsburgh. They still at some point had to get on a barge and go that way. So one of the other ways innovations was they actually built a uh, sort of a cable used by rope, which would move these boats essentially with the passengers up the hill using steam power, a stationary steam powered um, steam engine housed in what would look like a large barn. And that would pull them up the hill, 
again, disconnect them back down the hill, and they would repeat this through the Alleghenies. By building Horseshoe Curve, that eliminated it. Steam engines, even at that time, uh, even by the 1850s, didn't have the power to get up these steep hills. So uh, Walter Thompson, chief engineer of the Pennsylvania Railroad, came up with an idea of making a slow, gradual curve around the mountain um, to slowly bring it up. It is essentially just under a half a mile long in length, although it's shaped like a horseshoe to basically allow trains to go back and forth east and west. And this basically put the the old Allegheny Portage Railroad out of business. So they lasted almost exactly 20 years. So on February 10th, um, 1854, the Horseshoe Curve was opened and the railroads could now have, be unobstructed and go straight from Philadelphia, the East Coast, to Pittsburgh, which at that point was the gateway to the West. Then it became Chicago, St. Louis. And, and, you know, some people out there, a little bit of history, but you can get you could not get on a train from New York to Pittsburgh back then. You would usually cross a ferry into New Jersey. True. Absolutely. Yeah. Until we built the tunnels. Yeah. But if you could at least get to the New Jersey side, you could go directly to Pittsburgh now post 1854. Now, what's the organization you talk about? Lionel and what? Uh, the, the Nassau Lionel Operating Engineers Club. Um, do they still make Lionel trains? They do. Okay. They do. Um, and the club was founded um, on Long Island. They're in their second home. And I'm just looking for the address, so I don't want to screw this up. So they're in Levittown, as I mentioned. They're at 2953 Hempstead Turnpike. Um, they have three open houses a year. Um, generally at the Columbus Day weekend in October would be the next one. And then we have them in two week, the first two weekends in December and then right around St. Patrick's Day in March where the public comes down. They can tour the, um, the setup, which is pretty big. If some of your listeners have ever been down to Strasburg in Pennsylvania and visit the museums there, um, they might have gone to the Choo Choo Barn. Um, this display is nearly twice as large. So uh, kids love it. Families love it. It's a great thing for people to do. Um, the club has been around since uh, 1983. Uh, we still have, thankfully, a uh, few, few, few of the original members are still there. Um, and it's Lionel Trains. It's O-Gage. And uh, typically you get a larger group come down on a Friday night to run trains. But there's also maintenance. You know, we have to... Uh, clean the facility, make it available to the public. There's maintenance. Matter of fact, tomorrow I'm helping painting the floor uh, at the club tomorrow on Saturday. Now, so I, I always get cons- uh, confused by gauges. What size is O-Gage roughly? O-Gage is roughly about uh, about an inch and a half wide track. Okay. All right. Your N-Gage would be your big ones you see around going around Christmas trees and department stores. Those are the really big engines. You know, then you have your H, which is really tiny, great for people who live in an apartment, you know, where they don't have a lot of room or a lot of room in their basement. All right. So you got a website for this place? We do. Um, If they just type in National Lionel Operating Engineers, it'll come up. There's also they can get it on YouTube with YouTube videos with uh, links to it. And they have videos on um, 
the layout itself, and you can see how it's progressed over the years. You can do a virtual tour of it where they put a camera in front of the train going through the tunnels, which is pretty awesome. And um, it's something uh, we always look forward to when we have the open house to debut it to the public. All right. So you have to announce it when the open house is very close. Yes, I will. All right. I'll remind you, Mike. Steve Ryan, thanks again for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is one of the two players who played for both the New York baseball giants and the New York Mets. One player is Willie Mays. The other is our next guest, Ed Brasood. How you doing today, Ed? Very good, thank you. Okay, so, you know, a lot of our younger listeners are not going to even remember that there was such a thing as a New York Giant, but baseball Giant. How, how did you get involved? How did you get signed by the Giants? Uh, coming out of high school, I was working with very much with a fellow by the name of Evil Pusich, who was a Giant scout and bird dog in the area. Uh, after I finished high school, I was offered a scholarship to Stanford University uh, as an, an athletic scholarship. I was also offered one to uh, USC. I accepted the one at USC, and I uh, went to, went to work for the manager, not the the, uh, the uh, coach uh, for the USC. And I worked for a couple of days in the gas station. I didn't like it. I worked out with the Hollywood Stars, which was the Brooklyn organization in the Pacific Coast League. They offered me a contract. I went back to the Giants, told them they offered me a contract, what it was, and I said I'd rather sign with you guys, and I did. Okay, she started out in the New York Giant organization. Where was your first assignment? I played in Springfield, Ohio in 1950. It was a Class D league. Okay, but, you know, I noticed when looking at your, your stats, you lost a couple of years in the minor leagues to military service. How'd that happen? Well, when you're in the military service, they decide you're going to go someplace, and you do. So I went to Japan. I spent a year in Japan. Okay, because a lot of people don't realize the ballplayers used to be drafted back in the 40s and 50s. Absolutely. 
in fact, in, in the uh, 52 or 53 season, uh, they were they were drafted players from all over the country at the end of the military. And I can recall the Fort Ord uh, football team had uh, just an amazing Gino Marchetti, uh, uh, just all kinds of players. And San Francisco and the, and the baseball league, um, the Mays played for Fort Leonard Wood and and uh, Johnny Anthony played for the military district of Washington. All the players went in the service. Yeah, so eventually you do your time in the service, and you get to the major leagues, the Polo Grounds. What year was that? Uh, 1956. Now, Polo Grounds, it was an unusual baseball park. And again, our younger listeners probably have no idea of what the, the parameters were of that ballpark. It's different than anything you would see today. Yeah. In fact, I'm looking at a picture on my wall here of the opening of the Polo Grounds in 1904. And it shows uh, no no fence in, in center field, and it shows a. Um, let me see what this is showing. Uh, a horse carriage in center field. Well, you could practically put a horse carriage in center field, and it wouldn't matter on you know in dead center field in the polo grounds. Well, the center, dead center field is where our clubhouses were on both sides of a uh, of a statue, and it was 507 feet. It was very very big. Right. Nobody, not too many people ever hit the ball out there. I don't think anybody ever did. Right. All right. So you're playing with the Giants, and you, you guys moved to San Francisco. Now, the the New York Giants moving to San Francisco didn't have the traumatic effect that the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to L.A. Why? Well, I don't know. I don't know why you would say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was it was a huge it was a huge effect on everybody, both city both cities and both teams. Okay. It just seems that there are a lot more old, die-hard Brooklyn Dodger fans than there are New York Giant fans. My father was a Giant fan, so I'm not... Yeah, I, I suspect you might be right. Of course, Brooklyn at that particular time, with it just a couple of years before that, uh, Jackie Robinson, Carl Ferrillo, uh Don Newcomb, uh, they were a great ball club, and Campanella, and I think they had won a couple of World Series, so you can understand that. So, 1962, what happens? 19 what? 62. Well, wait, wait, I'm, I'm missing you here. 19, well, the end of the 61 season, beginning of the 62 season. Mm-hmm. You get drafted by the Houston Ball Club. That's correct. Okay, and then for some reason they traded you for a guy named Don Budden? That's correct. Uh, Mike Higgins, who was the manager uh, of the Boston Red Sox, uh, played. He was the manager at Louisville when I was in the minor leagues, as was Don Budden. Don Budden played for for um, uh, Mike Higgins. Mike Higgins and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the fellow's name with the Houston Houston Ball Club. They were best of buddies, fishing buddies. On uh, one of their trips, they said, uh, "Let's make a move. I'll give you Don Budden for Ed Brissue." And Mike says, Mike Higgins says yes. Uh, so, and I think I was on the Houston roster for maybe 30 days, and all of a sudden I get traded to the Red Sox, which for me it turned out to be marvelous. Now, obviously, your best years were with the Red Sox. What was it like playing in Boston Fenway Park back then? Uh, Fenway is a spectacular ballpark. Uh, very good background, a wonderful infield. Uh, the fans were very, very good, although not as as adamant as they're not as adamant as rabbits as they are now. But uh, I loved playing for Boston. They had uh, a wonderful history that you could 
immerse yourselves in great restaurants, uh, great theater. It was just a wonderful place to play. Now, in your career, you played for with two of the greatest outfielders of all time, Willie Mays and Carl Yastrzemski. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. So what was it like playing with Willie Mays out there in center field? Willie Mays is the greatest player I've ever seen uh, and probably ever will see. Uh, when I think about Mays, I think of myself being shortstop, and uh, he and I came into contact quite often as a result of a little pop flies in the center field, but he caught everything. Uh, as a result of his ability to move uh, and move very quickly, he played a very shallow center field, and I played deep shortstop, so we were contacting one another from time to time. But he was unbelievable. Uh, with regard to Carl Yastrzemski, uh, he played the short field wall in, in left field, and uh, he played the wall uh, just unbelievably well. Now, you got an opportunity to be selected in the 1964 All-Star Game. Yes. You didn't get a chance to play, though. I didn't play, uh, no. The, uh, we had the, Al Lopez was the manager that year. Uh, the National League had beaten the American League many years in a row, and he was going to play his best players for as long as he possibly could. I don't think there were many players who played in that game other than the starters. All right, so it's a little bit different than today when they seem to try to get everybody into the game. Oh, yeah, 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 and, and I wish he would have. It, it was disappointing to be selected to the team and not get a chance to play. Okay, so you're you're an all-star in in Boston. You're one of the best shortstops in the American League, and Rico Petroselli starts coming up, and you get traded to the New York Mets. Right. Mm-hmm. And what was it like coming back to New York? Well, it, it was fine. Then we had a gentleman. Our manager was was uh, Wes Westrom, who had played with one with the New York Giants. Uh, we were in New York, and he and I were pretty, pretty good friends, so it was nice to be able to play with him. He was a wonderful play in Shea Stadium. The fans were absolutely rabid. Uh, they were going crazy every time something happened. We'd score a run and be down six runs, and they were still rooting for us as if we were going to win the ball game. All right, so one year with the Mets, and then you get a pretty good break. I get a great break. Uh, April Fool's Day. Uh, Western calls me into the in his office and he said, Eddie, we're going to trade you. And I said, okay, where am I going? He said, St. Louis. I said, that's fabulous. I'm going from a ninth-place team to a first-place team. And uh, it was with St. Louis that year. I didn't play very much at all, um, but it was a wonderful group of players, of five, four or five Hall of Famers on the team, and it was just it was just great experience. Now, you, get it, you got a little bit of a chance to play in the World Series. Well, I played defensively two games, that's all. Okay, but you still got into the World Series. A lot of players never right. got that. That's true. I was lucky. There's a lot of great players who never played in the World Series. Was there any uh, nostalgia, whatever, when you, in the World Series in 1967 when you played in Boston? I'm sorry, I missed that question. Yeah, uh, was there any nostalgia or, or mixed feelings when you went back to Boston to play in the World Series? Well, uh, yeah, a bit, because I had played with them just a couple of years before that. And many of the players that I'd played with were still there, and most importantly, probably Yastrzemski. Uh, but uh, I got back in there, and I saw a lot of the people that I used to sit and knew and when I was playing with the Red Sox, and they were welcoming me to see, to see me, and, and I had a wonderful time with them. Uh, and, of course, we won, and that was the important thing. Right, you're a World Series winner. Now, soon after that, obviously, you're out of baseball. What did you do after you retired? Well, in the off-season for 14 years, I went to school to get a degree. I got a master's degree in history and, and uh, uh, kinesiology uh, in 1960. 
60, I think it was. And uh, I had been preparing for a long while to wind up being a teacher in the in the Bay Area. And uh, there's a little community college called De Anza Community College, which opened up the day I, the year that I retired. And so I got the job there. I say little school. It was uh, it was the largest community college in the United States, and we had 26,000 students. Now, did your students appreciate the fact that you played in the major leagues? Oh, yeah. Well, that's that, That's what got me the job. There's no doubt about that. Okay, so your biggest thrill in your years in the major leagues, what would it be? World Series championship. World Series championship. Even, even though I was not very actively involved in it. What was your, your personal highlight? Uh, I, played the, I played the Yankees one day in Fenway. And I hit uh, two home runs and a triple. We tied the game up in the ninth inning when I hit a home run in the ninth inning. Probably the best game I ever played. Okay. What year was that? Um, Must have been 1963. All right. So you got a chance to play in New York, the Polo Grounds, Fenway Park, two of the old story ballparks, newer ballparks at Chase Stadium and in St. Louis. Uh what what would you tell somebody today, some kid who's trying to learn baseball, what trying to be a baseball player, professional baseball player, what advice would you give them? Persistence, listen to your coaches. Uh, don't put any any restrictions on your own ability. Go with the flow, see what you can and can't do. Uh the opportunities for players now with regard to the playing of the game with uh, video and so forth are, are so much dramatically different than ours. And the coaches have that information. You have the information. You can go in the video room and get uh, all the basic information you'll ever need. And uh, I think it helps dramatically. All right. Eddie Pursued, member of the New York Mets, New York Giants, All-Star, World Series champion. Thank you for being on our show. Okay, you take care. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye. Thank you very much, Mr. Pursued. Thank you. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services.
Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. Again, with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth, and my son, Michael. Hey. Eddie Eddie pursued rest in peace. Now, rest in peace. We went through, you know, an email question before, and probably we're not good enough on giving out the email address. Michael, where, where does somebody email us a question if they have anything about uh, estate planning or elder law? If you have a question you want to send us in for the show, you're going to send that to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Sometimes, obviously, a question is more confidential and we'll email you privately. Um, sometimes it's best to come in and discuss it. Otherwise, though, you may hear your question right on air. All right. Now, we're going to be back, you know, next week, same time and places. Uh, We have some very interesting guests coming up. One, we have Father Sarika, who has been on the show before, and he's an economist and a priest, and he's a big fan of the free market. And what's the name of his book, Michael, that he's going to be talking about? The Economics of the Parables. Yeah, I, I, I think that should be very interesting because I think sometimes people believe and falsely so, the Christianity and capitalism are kind of at odds. But I, I think if you really look at it and study it, Christianity and capitalism go together. More people have been brought out of poverty through capitalism than anything else. And socialism doesn't bring uh, people out of poverty. I think that's pretty clear. And, and I think there's a strong argument to be made, you know, through the Ten Commandments and the, and the Gospels and so forth. The capitalism really is the the place to go. That's the freedom and that's what develops wealth and that's what helps people get ahead and that's the way to help your neighbor is to that they get a job and they make their own money and they support themselves. So I'm sure that's part of what Father Sarik is going to be saying. And the other one is, the, the other guest we have is Burke Kearns who wrote a book about Lawrence Tierney. And you're going to say, I know some of you are going to say out there, who is Lawrence Tierney? Uh, <laughs> what I would say, and I'm going to repeat this when he comes on around nine, in the late 1970s, when I got back from the army one time, I was we were watching some old movies with my father and my mother. And I asked my father, who's your favorite actor? And, you know, I expected him to say somebody like John Wayne or, uh, you know, somebody like that, Robert Mitchum. And he said, Lawrence Tierney. And at the time <laughs> I said, who was Lawrence Tierney? And then he <laughs> rolled off a couple of movies that Lawrence Tierney was in. And he says, yeah. And, and I tended bar with him. And I chronologically, I didn't ask any questions because I didn't know who Lawrence Tierney was at the time. But since then, I've been watching every Lawrence Tierney. I can get, <laughs> get my hands on one or the other. But Lawrence Tierney, for those more recent 
and even this is 30 years ago, he was in Reservoir Dogs, he played the old Irish guy, and he grew up in Brooklyn, and he had a, lot, a very interesting life, and we're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. In the meanwhile, tune in next week, same time, and ask the lawyer on the same station. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks so much Bye, for joining everybody. us. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.